If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. This will be our last uh, sermon in Romans for now. So we're going to look at chapter 16 today, and I'm going to read a selection from this chapter, uh, the first seven verses, and then uh, we'll look at verses 17 through 27 as well. So what I'm going to read to you is the, God, is the Word of God. Uh, you can trust it. You can bank your entire life on it. Uh, these words that I read, you ought to consider them as, being, as coming from the heart of God, as being breathed out by God for you and for me. Listen to this, verse 1 of chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my own life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Skip down to verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, mm, those are some great words we just heard. You are worthy of all honor, all glory. You are worthy of every breath, every thought, every deed. All that we are belongs to you. You made us. You remade us. You're completing the work that you started. And one day all will be made new. So Lord, help us to understand more of who we are and what and who you are. Help us to see these words and concepts and this whole chapter as part of a letter from home. Lord, work in us. Write the eternal truth of what we have here into our lives. 
change us. We pray this for your glory. We pray this for our good. We pray this depending upon you, Holy Spirit. Work in us. Work through us. Bring us to Christ afresh. Amen. You know, Romans 16 is a very unique chapter in the book of Romans. It's different than all the other chapters. It's unique because Romans 16 embodies every single thing that the Apostle Paul has been saying since chapter 1. This chapter is profoundly beautiful because it shows us everything that Paul has been saying, even though it's unique. Now, as we look at Romans 16 this morning, we're going to make two stops in our journey through this chapter. The first stop is going to be this, takeaways, and then our second stop is going to be the story. So I'm going to give you some takeaways, and then we're going to end with the story of this book in our lives. That's where we're going today. Also, I can show you, I'm doing those two things so I can show you that the gospel is invincible. That's what I want you to know. That's what I hope God does in each one of us, that he convinces us that the gospel is invincible. So let's start with the takeaways. Remember how I told you how this chapter is unique? Well, I'm going to do something unique this morning. Matter of fact, I don't know that I've ever done this in preaching. Maybe once. I'd have to really look, but I, maybe once. So this is very unique for me too. I've got, in order to understand these takeaways, I have a holiday acronym for you as we go through these takeaways. And I'll just tell you right now, this is cheesy. I'm just going to tell it to you. But these are going to be the takeaways. We've got six of them. And they're going to spell the word turkey. So let's go through these six. Six takeaways so we can have some more turkey. T, triumph over our enemy. Look at verse 20. When you read through this chapter, you can think to yourself, what is all this list of names and what are all these things and interspersing those little paragraphs. So we got to pull out things from this chapter. The first one is this, God wants us to know that he will triumph and has triumphed over our enemies. Look at verse 20. God says that he will shortly crush Satan under our feet. God is reminding us in Romans of what he says in Genesis. It's the same language. Remember when sin entered the world and brokenness entered the world? God said that he would crush the serpent's head, that Jesus would come and crush the serpent's head. Friends, you are not wrong to think about Jesus as the snake crusher. You're not. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And he came to do that through his perfect life, through his death on the cross, and through his victory over death. He defeated death by giving himself to it. And make no mistake, the enemy in the first century is the same enemy we have now, our true enemy. Our true enemy wants us dead. Our true enemy wants us deceived about what is true. And our true enemy wants us distracted from what is true. And God says, as he concludes his letter through Paul, I will crush Satan under your feet soon. That happened in principle 
through what Jesus did on the cross in the empty tomb. That was the definitive blow to our enemy. Isn't it nice to know as we sit here today that our enemy has been defeated and will finally be defeated? That someone took care of that for us? Isn't that nice to know? That your real enemy has been given a death blow through Jesus. And that God actually, by saying things the way he does in verse 20, invites us to participate in his demise. He's going to crush Satan under our feet. In other words, we're walking around, we're stomping around. As Jesus smashed the serpent's head, oh, it's still, he is still kicking around. But we continue to act in faith and give him a blow, smash him. We continue to live by truth and aren't deceived, and we're putting down the enemy. We are getting outside of ourselves and thinking about other people, not thinking that our lives are supposed to center on self, and we are continuing to apply the significance of the cross and the power of the resurrection to the enemy, and all of that by grace. As you sit here today and think about your life and think about the church and think about the world, your enemy has been crushed. And God will make it final. Not too long. Second, uncompromising on the gospel. Look at verse 25 through 27. Again, God takes us back. Paul begins to praise God for the fact that God strengthens us through the gospel. He's beginning the book the way that he started it. Remember the whole point of Romans? That the gospel is God's power. He ends Romans by saying that God has the power to strengthen us through the gospel. That God has the ability to change us through the gospel. That God has the power to grow us in maturity and to move us toward wisdom and Christ-likeness through the gospel. Paul is praising God because God has the ability to take the significance of what Jesus has done and bring that into our lives and change us so that we can praise God because it all redounds to his glory. There's not a thing about the Christian message that we get to rejoice in self. We get to praise God for what he has done. We get to praise God for what he's continuing to do in our lives all through the gospel. That means this. As you sit here this morning, do you know what the gospel is? I mean it. Can you, can you spot the counterfeit? Would you know it if you heard a counterfeit? What is the gospel? What is it? Well, the gospel is not this. The gospel is not advice. It's not taking things from the Bible and giving you advice on how to live a better life. The gospel is not taking principles from Scripture and putting that into a system of life and you just implement those methods or tricks or techniques. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus loves you. It's not. The gospel is the declaration of the reality. 
The gospel is declaring the reality. What is this true story of reality? For those of you that are theological nerds, and if you're not, wander off for a few seconds if you want to. Those of you that are theological nerds, this is what it means technically. Dogmatic declaration of the Historia Salutis. That's the gospel. The gospel is declaring what is true reality. And it has four parts. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. And the counterfeit, the counterfeit always either misses one or more of those parts or misrepresents them. So that if you think Christianity is simply sin in Jesus, you've missed it. There will be those who forget about creation. There will be those who forget about restoration. You have to have all four in order to communicate the gospel. You have to have all four to understand the reality, what is actually true, the story of reality. You miss one of those, you've missed the gospel. And Paul is saying, God changes you through that story of reality, through you understanding that you were created by him and for him, through understanding that we rebelled against him, and instead of serving God and spreading his glory in the world, we exchanged that for the lie that we can satisfy ourselves and define ourselves. And because of that, God came to pursue us so we don't have to wander around trying to find him. He came to us, and his name was Jesus. And what he did on the cross satisfied the consequences of all of our rebellion. And because of what he has done, he now is gonna return and make all things new, and all things will be right, and heaven and earth will be reunited. Heaven is coming down one day. Finally, God will be with his people forever. Beloved, do you know that is the gospel? Would, would you recognize that? Would you spot the counterfeit? Do you know the counterfeit? You see, the gospel is what makes sense of things we say all the time. God is the beginning and the end. That's how we understand that he's the beginning and the end is through the gospel that he's created. We've rebelled. Christ has come and all things will be made new. He's the beginning and the end. The gospel is how we know God. The gospel is how we enter into this reality of what is most true and what is, what is real, who we really are, what's really wrong with the world and how to fix it and where we're going. That's the good news. And it's a declaration that it's been done, that it's happening. You see, the gospel is the way that God deals with our past and our present and our future. It's how he brings us into relationship with him. As we think about this book of Romans, we should not compromise on the gospel. He tells the church there, don't compromise. Be uncompromising with the gospel. R stands for relational. You can't read Romans 16 without understanding relationship. 
There's so many names. There are people who are in Corinth. That's where Paul probably was at this time. There are people who are obviously in Rome and in different parts of Rome because there are different house churches that are gathering together on a weekly basis in Rome. He writes to people who are uh, in Corinth. He writes to people who are probably in Ephesus. He writes to people who are all over the place. And everything about this chapter is relational. Everything. To those that are in the house church, what are they doing? Greeting each other? Welcoming each other? What does it mean that Paul wants to go there? What does it mean that he knows these people, Priscilla and Aquila, from other places? What does it mean that he writes about Epinatus? What does it mean that he writes all these names? Friends, they were in relationship together. They walked, well, at one time they didn't know each other, and now they do. Which means their lives were being knit together through living. Which means they welcomed one another. Which means they received truth and they talked about it together. It means that they prayed together. It means that people gave their resources so that this furthering of the kingdom could continue to happen. It means that they even risked things in their life for the good of other people. Look at verse four and five and six. What does it tell you? It says, greet these people. Priscilla and Aquila, they, they risked their own necks for me. Do you see that in the text? Let me tell you, we have no idea what that means. But people in Ephesus and Corinth and Rome did. They understood exactly what that meant. And it's possible that Priscilla and Aquila actually offered for, to give of their own lives so that Paul could go free. It's possible. That implies relationship, doesn't it? That implies that they were living together, promoting the same mission, doesn't it? Everything that Paul writes about is talking about relationship. He wants us to be in relationship with each other. He wants us to be connected with other churches and other groups of people that are spreading the kingdom and planting churches and loving other people and serving the community and giving together. So that relationship is everywhere. And that's something that can at times be hard. You know, introducing yourself to someone, welcoming new people, praying for people. You don't get a lot of credit for prayer, you know? It's not like you can go up to someone and say, well, I prayed five hours this week. How long did you pray this week? Most of these, most of the ways that we relate to one another are things that our culture, we don't often value. You know, so many of you do so many things behind the scenes it's the texting, it's the reaching out to people, it's the praying, it's the serving one another, it's the words of encouragement, it's being a listening ear when you're going through a hard time, it's being willing to open up your life and talk about what God is doing in your life and how that then can relate to someone else's life. That's what Paul is commending, real, genuine relationship. Cross continents, cross lines, risking your neck for someone sometime, getting outside of yourself and thinking more of others than you do of self. Everything about this is relational. Where are we? T-U-R-K, kingdom focus. Everything about this chapter is about the work of God. Again, Paul's with Timothy, verse 21 says, probably in Corinth at this time, and he's writing about the kingdom expanding. 
He's writing about churches getting planted. He's writing about how they should think of the gospel and the culture that that produces. He's even telling them, the church in Rome, that he wants to come and see them. But he's got to go back to Jerusalem first. Why? Because he has to give a gift because people in Jerusalem need resources. So he's going back to Jerusalem and then he's traveling, hopefully back to Rome and through that to Spain so that he can plant more churches. Everything about this chapter is for the kingdom. That means that the way that people are viewing their lives, their callings, their family, their relationship is all for the kingdom of God. So that as they work Monday through Saturday, Monday through Friday, whatever it is, they're thinking about the kingdom. So as they're having people to their house, as they're out and about, they're thinking about the kingdom. Everything here is about thinking of what God is doing, not what we want to have done in the world, and not what we're doing, but focusing on God and his people everywhere. By the way, the E stands for everyone's included. Everyone. You go back through this list of names and go back through this chapter, you will find names that are Jewish names. You will find names that are uh, Latin names. You'll find Greek names. You will find uh, the guy in verse 23 who is uh, um, the maintenance man for the city. How about that? You have the, the highest of the high class socially standing in that ancient world and, and the lowest class in the ancient world. You got people who are part of the emperor's house in verse 10 and 11 and descendants of the emperor and grandsons of the emperor. You even have slaves. You have every type of person you have every type of culture. And out of the 26, roughly 26 names in this list and in this chapter, at least nine, maybe more, are women. And that may not mean much to you today, but let me tell you, in the first century, that is extraordinary. Because women had no standing. They weren't even allowed, their testimony wasn't allowed in the court of law. And Paul is including the work of all of these women in the church and in the churches. Look at what he says about Mary, who served not only a church in Rome, but others, other churches. Look at verse 1 where he talks about Phoebe. Look at what he says about her. Here she was, a servant of the church. Here she was also happened to be of some means and wealth, which is, again, extraordinary. Because she was the benefactor of churches that were getting planted. And Paul adds, and of myself too. She gave personally to the Apostle Paul. And she was giving for other churches to be planted all over the world. And more than likely, she was traveling to Rome on some type of business. And it is thought that she delivered what you are holding in your hands. The letter to the church in Rome. Phoebe, in her hands, brought the letter to the churches in Rome. What you're holding in your hands is a copy of what Phoebe took to Rome. Is that not amazing? Do you feel connected? You should. Paul writes about those that served the church and cared, that gave of themselves, that gave of their resources sacrificially. Everyone was included. Didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. 
Didn't matter whether you were educated or not. Didn't matter if you were married. Didn't matter if you were single. Didn't matter if you were part of the upper class. Didn't matter if you had nothing. Everyone was included. And everyone was together. Serving. Living by the gospel. But Paul does give us the why a yellow light in this chapter. It's flashing. Warning. He tells them and reminds us that God has triumphed over our enemy. He reminds us to be uncompromising with the gospel. He tells us that we need to be kingdom focused. He reminds us that the gospel message is for everyone, but he does flash a yellow light. Look at verse 17 and 18. Paul tells the church in Rome the same thing he would tell us. Watch out. Because there will be those who try to come in who teach something different from my doctrine. Who teach something different from apostolic doctrine. Meaning there are those who come in that try to divert your attention, church, from the gospel. There are those who are going to try to get you to follow something that is not Jesus. And let me tell you, church, Miss Paul speaking, they are full of flattery and they're very eloquent and they look for those who are naive. That's why you need to be uncompromising on the gospel. You can't jettison the gospel or assume the gospel to move on to something else. Paul's saying there's nothing else to move on to. Our whole existence is built around the gospel, so don't let false teachers come in, no matter how eloquent, no matter how much they flatter you, they are teaching something different from the gospel. And Paul says, avoid them. He doesn't say refute them. He doesn't say talk on Twitter about it. He doesn't say blog about it. He says, avoid them. Stay away. He even adds in verse 19, be wise to what is good and innocent toward evil. See that? Do you notice that? Paul is taking us back to the garden again. Do you remember the first temptation? To eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you remember that? You see, there was a time in which good was everything and evil was standing and sitting outside here. But what happened with the temptation is that to give in to the temptation meant that good and evil would then exist together. So that evil would often present itself seductively, flatteringly as good. And it would prey on our naivete. And it would grow. Because it came across as good. Because it seemed good. And beloved, that's the mess that we're in now with temptation and sin, isn't it? That sin looks 
good. There was a time when sin and rebellion didn't look good at all until it did. That's why rebelling at times can feel so good on the front end and then not long after it can feel so empty. It's, it's why rebelling against God and serving self can sound so attractive and can seem so enticing. But yet the weight of trying to make yourself happy is crushing. But yet trying to define everything for yourself is just overwhelming, right? It sounds good, but at the end of the day, it's empty and bankrupt. Paul says, avoid those that try to take your attention away from the gospel. Beware, because they'll be eloquent, they'll flatter you, but they're always looking for the naive. And not many of us know who are naive, because few of us think that we're naive, right? Probably aren't too many of us who, if we were in a room, would say, describe yourself, I'm a really naive person. Would we? In other words, all of this applies to every one of us because we all have blind spots and we all are naive. That's why it's so important that we don't compromise on the gospel. And by God's grace, he'll give us deeper desire for the gospel, right? So that we can spot the counterfeit and we can avoid it and stay away so that we can be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Well, those are the takeaways. Let's get to the story. In order to understand this story in the first century when Paul writes this around 57, 58 to the church in Romans, I want us to understand our own story and understand where we are in the world. I learned this from a guy named Andy Crouch. I didn't make this up, learned it from him. He says that there are three shifts that make up the world in which we live in, the modern world. The first was in 1397 when there was a shift in finances, a shift from land to money. Banks started in the late 1300s, if I'm not mistaken, with an Italian family that came up with the two-sided ledger. And the rest is history, as they say. That's led to what we have in the modern world that we live in. A shift in finances from land to money. Another shift came with work. There was a shift, 1769. A shift from men and women working and animals working to machines and the steam engine. As they say, the rest is history into the modern world that we live in. The third shift was with information. 1948, Claude Shannon came up with the theory of information, and there was a shift from craving and desiring wisdom, a shift from wisdom to just data and information. And you know what's happened in the modern world that we live in? Untold wealth and prosperity. True? Untold doing what we want, going where we're going, doing whatever we can. It has produced unbelievable amounts of wealth. Matter of fact, the theory of information is what led to your cell phones working and ultimately the internet. It all started back then in 48 with a the theory of information. It's astounding, right? 
What it produced was not only untold wealth and prosperity and growth and development, but you know what also produced? A real sense of individualism, a real desire to be autonomous, a real desire to think that freedom is having no restraints, a real mentality that we're just going to get better and better and better, a mentality that means that, that we think that by our own actions we can do anything and change anything that we want. What it's led to is a sense that the self is what's most important and God doesn't belong. And yet at the same time, we live in a time in which is haunted by this sense of transcendence, that there's something bigger out there, but we've done a really good job of pushing God out and trying to keep him out of things because we want to exalt self. Well, I want you to understand that those same shifts happened prior to the first century in the Roman Empire. It was the Roman Empire that developed the minted coin. It was the Roman Empire that leveraged force in order to build roads and buildings and develop cities. It was the Roman Empire that also created, or also created an environment in which people weren't real human beings. Everything was just transactional. Yeah, in the Roman Empire you had, sure, you had those who were the elite class and involved in politics, and you had generals and soldiers, and then you had slaves. 20 to 30% of the Roman Empire were slaves. And then, and then just people just didn't care. That was the world in the first century. But you know what? Something happened. You notice what verse 22 tells you? Look at verse 22. This is what it says. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Paul's wrapping up his letter. Paul has a secretary, and his secretary is named Tertius. You know, in the first century, when you didn't want your children, you could just throw them out in a particular pile. It was legal to do that until 300-something. And if your parents didn't want to throw you out, you know what else they could do? They could just give you names like this. I don't really care about you, so I'm going to call you first, second, and tertius, third. In the next verse, quartus. What do you think that means? Fourth. It's describing people who grew up in homes that their parents didn't care about them at all. They just gave them a name that meant third. And Paul is saying as he wraps up the entire letter, Tertius, don't forget to greet everyone. Here's someone that in the Roman Empire in the first century was thought of as nothing. He was a nobody. But guess what happened? Jesus came. Jesus died. And he rose from the dead. And you know what that meant for Tertius? that he had purpose and meaning and worth and value and he had a family. And he was connected to other people that had nothing. And he was connected to people that had wealth. And he was part of this kingdom of God and churches that were being planted. And he was the secretary for the apostle Paul. And Paul says, churches, don't forget to greet your family. Can you imagine that moment? 
oh yeah, I greet you in the Lord because it's in Christ that I have life. Isn't that incredible? Beloved, the gospel is invincible. And I mean that in a proactive sense. The gospel breaks down every social barrier. The gospel has the power to overthrow any government. In other words, there is no government that can wipe out the gospel in the church. It means that the gospel is stronger and more coherent than any ideological framework. It means that the gospel brings everyone together all by grace. And as the world continues to depersonalize, as the world continues to tell you that you're all that matters, as the world continues to move perhaps in a direction where everything is transactional, where you don't, it's thought you don't need anyone or anything, the gospel brings life. It is invincible. There is nothing that unites like the gospel. And there is nothing that divides like the gospel. And beloved, that is what brings us to the table.